So John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side has made him known. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning again, everybody. Great to see you all. Welcome everyone who's joined us also online this morning. Quick word of encouragement to parents. I was thinking about this this morning and I was thinking, parents love to give gifts to their children. Children love to receive gifts from their parents. There's even... Even teenagers love to receive gifts from their parents. And uh, I just want to encourage you to say that one of the greatest gifts, parents, that you can give your children is a love for the Scriptures, a love for the Word of God. And to model that and let your children, your teenagers, see that you love God's Word and you, you pass on that love. Because that love for the scriptures will be something that endures with them all the days of their life. And it will steer them through all of the different seasons of development and storms that will come as well. So give them a gift by modelling for them your love for the scriptures. And let them see you habitually reading the scriptures on a daily basis and stirring that up in them and sitting and reading with them. There's... Um, there's such an amazing uh, assortment, if you like, of uh, resources for parents uh, that are available from bookshops like Kurong Books, all sorts of like beginner Bibles and just the whole range. And so if you're not familiar with those resources, take a trip out to Kurong Books in Leederville and spend a bit of time there browsing through the children's Bible sections and picking something that's suitable and sit and read the scriptures and give them a love for the scriptures. I'm very grateful that my parents uh, did that for me and Julie's parents did it for her as well and we had the, we had the challenge and the joy of, of doing it with our sons 
and uh, such a delight to see their love for the scriptures and them now uh, giving, passing on that blessing, that gift to their own children as well. And grandparents, you can get in on this as well. I know lots of grandparents love to give this gift to grandchildren as well. So if you're a grandparent here today, I encourage you to uh, share the same blessing with your grandchildren as well, uh, whether their parents uh, have that or not. Okay, we've begun working our way through John's biography of, of Jesus. And uh, remember that John was one of the first disciples of Jesus and travelled with him for three years. He's someone that knew Jesus. It's eyewitness testimony. And so important to understand that, that this is not someone who heard stories about Jesus uh, or anything like that, they actually were with Jesus for three years, John was. And it's, it's my belief that uh, the world, the whole world, needs to know Jesus as he is, not as they want him to be. But also the church, we need to know Jesus as he is, not as we want him to be. Because I've learned over the years, even of my own journey with Jesus as well, that there's things that, ideas that I had or ways that I thought Jesus was that when I actually come back to the scriptures, I'm confronted with seeing him that he's, he's different, he's the same, but he's different. And so it's always this ongoing unfolding of the revelation of Jesus. And um, uh, without, di- without giving, uh, digressing a little bit, this reality of I keep encountering people and there's, there's material in even our main, mainstream media about Jesus that's just wrong, that's not based on actually who he is, it's who they want him to be. Uh, and um, yeah, so we so so important for us to know him as he is and be able to highlight that and talk about that with people. Um, so this is the question, really, for all of us. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Jesus that John knew and has written about? And um, uh, just remind you of the words of the uh, Irishman, Clive Staples Lewis. Uh, he was an atheist and he made a careful examination of the life of Jesus and he wrote about this in his book, Mere Christianity. And this is a quote from his book where he said, um, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Isn't that a great thing? Don't you want to be saved from saying foolish things? Who'd be putting your hand up for that? Like if you could have someone walk alongside me and say, don't say, that's foolish, don't go there. You'd be, you'd be wanting to pay attention. So here's the foolish thing that C.S. Lewis says that people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis goes on to say, that's the one thing we must not say. And he, and he says it this way. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. <laughs> Interesting. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. Lewis goes on to say, you must make your choice because either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
And he concludes by saying, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at Jesus and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. I, I, some of you I know have heard that before, but it's one of those things that I don't think you can ever hear too much because um, the choice is Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he really is the Lord. And when we go through John, we see clearly John's answer is he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. Uh, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Last week in the first bit, we talked about um, the sevens in John. Do you remember that? Yep. How many of you remember what they are? They're not on the screen. Yep. There are seven titles. Yep, that's right. Seven signs and seven declarations. That's exactly right. So... Uh, we, we went through them and we're going to obviously visit them as we, as we keep going through. But just to say again, this thing of sevens is the number of completion, it's the number of perfection that's used throughout the Bible uh, to speak of these things. So John again, through even having these seven titles given to Jesus, having Jesus do these seven miraculous signs and having Jesus make these seven declarations, he's saying... He is the complete package. He's the perfect package. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. By believing in him, he will have life in his name. I want to talk about the fact that um, Jesus said some things, and you will see this over and over again if you read through John's biography of Jesus. Jesus often said and did things that, that offended some people. Now, let me say that um, his goal necessarily wasn't to offend them, but they were offended by what he said. And in John, I think one of the things that he is wanting us to not settle for is a sentimental or placid Jesus. So he shows us Jesus saying and doing things that causes offense amongst people, it stirs people up. And one of the Best ways I heard this said was by a gentleman in Christ, John Wimber, who many years ago heard John say these words. He said, God will often offend your mind to reveal what's really in your heart. And I took that saying to heart and I began to go, whenever I would read something in the scriptures and I would be offended by it, I would ask the question, what's going on in my heart? So God will often offend our mind so that we know what's really in our heart. Um, and so we see Jesus doing this. And so that we, we see his offense. We see that causes debates, vigorous debates. It causes controversy. And it often results in intimidation by those with the power at that time. And one of the things that John shows in his gospel, and in fact all the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, also a very similar trajectory of the life of Jesus, whereby offence leads to people are offended, they then begin to accuse Jesus, which ultimately leads to the betrayal of Jesus and bloodshed. And Jesus repeatedly told his disciples, over and over again, he said, 
how they've treated me is how they're going to treat you. And this is a really important thing for us to understand. Because down through the ages, this is how Christians have been treated. Followers of Jesus, uh, the message of Jesus is offensive to those, uh, Paul talks about this in his letters, to those who, who will not come to Jesus, who, will, who resist his message to repent and to return to God. And that's been, so this betrayal and bloodshed, the death of Christians around the world has been common for much of the last 2,000 years, except for the period in which we have been living and preceded this time, sort of about the last 300 years in Western democracies like Australia that had a strong Judeo-Christian foundation and worldview. And so we actually, so much of our laws that have come through Western democracies with a Judeo-Christian foundation and worldview that have benefited so many people on the planet have come because of Jesus. Now, Australian culture, as I'm sure many of you are aware, we've been shifting away and actively pulling up. People have been actively uprooting what we would call the Judeo-Christian foundations of our society. And I believe that as the body of Christ... We ought to be preparing ourselves, we ought to be preparing our children and our grandchildren for what is to come. And I believe that we will see in our nation more and more that obeying Jesus and speaking for Jesus will risk persecution, it will risk martyrdom even, but there will also be thousands who will joyfully surrender to Jesus will embrace him as the Messiah, the Son of God. They will understand that he is the water of life, that he is the bread from heaven, that he is the true resurrection and that he is the way and the truth and the life and the only way to God the Father. And so it's with that. It's kind of a sobering thing, but it's also, should I hope, fills your hearts with hope. Last week we touched a little bit and I put up the map which is on the screen behind me now and we remind, I just reminded you again that Jesus, these things happen in real time and real places with real people and, and the map just shows where these things are happening. It's important that we grab a hold of that, that reality and have some familiarity with the geography and how the land of Israel works and so when we read the places that we read where Jesus was, we've got a picture in our mind of where it was and I said that often it will say things like, and Jesus was in, in Galilee, and then the next sentence it was, Jesus was speaking in the temple in Jerusalem. You need to understand that there's a couple of hundred kilometers of travel that have gone on between those two sentences that John puts together. Okay, John, why is he writing? Where is he writing from? What's he trying to communicate? There's some questions that hopefully you are asking, because everyone writes... Sorry, not everyone writes. Let me say this way. In school, you're told what to write. You're given a topic and you're told, write something on this topic. I think that's how schools work. Teachers, is, is that how you kind of work? English teachers, you give them a topic or you're told, go and do this. So John's writing about his relationship with Jesus, how he knew Jesus, and he's wanting to communicate specific things about Jesus. And he's writing to an audience 
So it's not like he's writing, he's, you know, he's got specific people in mind and he's got people who are both Jews and people who are Greeks in mind. I think he's writing this letter from the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. That city is a Greco-Roman city, strongly influenced by the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle and Plato. But the, Greco, the Greeks, when they conquered the world... Part of what they did was they wanted to implant their culture everywhere they went. And so the Greco, what we call the Greco-Roman culture, uh, because Rome continued it, or made some variations of it, but it, it was embedded in that place. So this is the worldview that people have. And it, this worldview, we need to understand, the biblical worldview is a different worldview. The Greek worldview is something completely separate so john has to write to people some of whom he's he's trying to he's writing to jews to say this is who jesus is and he's writing to people who are greeks and he's saying this is who jesus is and i think he really skillfully uh puts the story of jesus and the things that jesus says in a way that speaks to both jews and greeks and so i know that it will speak to us our society has been strongly influenced by a Greek worldview of how the world was formed and how the Greek gods interact with the world. This is actually part of what's stirring in our culture. And Paul says it this way when he writes um, in, to the Christians in the city of Colossae. He says this, he says, don't let anyone capture you. He's writing to the Christians, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also complete through your union with Christ who is the head over every ruler and authority. So uh, I want to highlight some of the dangers today of, of the mix of Greek thinking into our own thinking and most of it um, is not because you've consciously thought as as people have grown up in, in Australia or wherever you've grown up it's like yes I want to mix Greek thinking with biblical thinking um, I'd be surprised if there's anyone in this room who's had that thought if you have please come and chat to me afterwards I'd love to know how that originated in your brain and Paul, when he writes, and he writes to the very heart, and when he writes his letter to the Romans in the very epicenter of the Roman Empire, and he declares that to them that God's made himself obvious to everybody, but people won't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds become dark and confused. And claiming to be wise, they instead become utter fools. Paul doesn't mince his words, does he? He's talking about really well-educated philosophers, or what we would call, you know, sort of academics, university professors. But he's saying anyone that refuses to worship God, God, the evidence for God is all around us, but people refuse to worship God. And so they create ideas about God. And in that creation of ideas about God, they become dark, their minds become dark and confused. And although they claim to be wise, from God's point of view, they're utter fools. 
There's a well-known psalm. It begins with, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Instead of going back to Romans, and instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they instead worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, so that's, that's the backdrop. That's the, what's going on. The world is steeped in a philosophy that is, if you like, anti-Christ. It's an anti-Christian philosophy. It's, a, it's philosophies that say there is no God and they dominate the world that John is writing into and they dominate ours as well. So, okay, just want to quickly spend the rest of the time today showing how John really well uh, confronts two central ideas that run through the Greek philosophical work, worldview. And we'll, we'll refer, I'm going to refer to them as, as reason and uh, reality or duality. I'll, I'll explain both these terms. So John declares that Jesus is this, the, both the source of reason and reality. Now, people write doctoral theses on these ideas from Greek philosophy. And my ten- I've not written one. But the tension from a teacher's point of view is how much information to put in and how much to leave out so that the people you have got some idea of what's going on. So uh, if some of you leave to go today saying he didn't do a very good job with those, he could have said a lot more, and some of you leave saying I got totally confused and way too much about this, this stuff, this Greek stuff, then I'll probably hit it right. And those of you that thought I didn't say enough, team up with the people who thought I said too much and, and compare notes and help one another, please. All right. Okay. So, logos is the first bit, or reason, or logic. And so, from a Greek point of view, the Greeks would say the logic or the reason the world exists is such and such and such and such. And so, this is what John does. He opens his book with these words, in the beginning, the Logos already existed. The Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Nothing was created except through him. The Logos gave life to everything. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Now, John's doing two things here. He's speaking to Greeks and he's speaking to Jews because when the Jews read the first bit, in the beginning, what do they hear? Genesis 1, yes, exactly. So he's got the Jews' attention and then when he says the word logos, he's got the Greeks' attention. Now he's got everybody's attention. So he's saying right back. So remember he's telling a story about Jesus. He's describing who Jesus is. So starting all the way back in their worldview, for the Jews, it's in the beginning God. For the Greeks, it's in the beginning logos, reason, rationality. There was a rational thing that created the earth. He's saying that reality, and he goes and unpacks it, and we're going to spend more time in this chapter um, in a couple of weeks' time. But this is, is what, what he's saying is the eternal, pre-existent mind, if you like, that the Greeks believe created everything, is the man Jesus. This one that the Greeks say is unknowable, that unknowable one became human and dwelt among us. That one who gave life to everything walked on the earth as a man. These are stunning statements, stunning claims. 
They're confrontive. And John says, he came into the very world he created. For for a Greco-Roman person, the idea of the mind, the rationality or the logic that's behind the universe actually becoming flesh and blood and walking on the planet was just like, that's offensive, that's not real, that's unreality, that could never happen. So John keeps going. He says, the word became human flesh and made his home among him. We have seen his glory, the unique one who is self is God. So now remember, John's an eyewitness. So this thing he, he is speaking about, I, I just think he's captivated by this. His memories of Jesus have obviously, he's thinking about all these realities. He's, he's going, I actually, I actually walked and I actually stood beside the creator of the heavens and earth. That would be, that, that ought to do us in. Later on in one of his letters that he writes to the Christians, he says, we, we touched him. We saw him and we touched him. This is stunning statements and I'm just, I'm trying to stun you a little bit this morning with it. You know, and it, and it filled with such magnificent hope because it's against the backdrop of a Greek and Roman pantheon of multiple gods who throw thunderbolts at the earth and you know, go to appease them and all these kind of things. It, it, it gives us hope today in the, in the cascading wave called the evolution of the species that says there's no creator that existed. You're just a function of some cosmic accident that came into being your life has no reason or purpose other than what you give it and it also confronts the indigenous dream time as well but it fills people with hope to say here the God who created the heavens and earth came to the earth he walked among us he this one who is the ultimate logic and reason is knowable, is personable. This is wonderful news, people. The second Greek idea is what I've called uh, duality. Um, now, there's other words for it, but I've just called it duality. Um, and one of the things that uh, happened way back in, in the early centuries of the church was some of the Christians tried to blend a biblical worldview with the Greco-Roman worldview, and they ended up with a, with a very discordant version called Gnosticism. Um, so Gnosticism is, can be almost substituted sometimes, not completely, for this duality that I'm talking about. It. So what this teaches is that duality teaches... that. So this is in Greco-Roman philosophy. Duality teaches that there are two realities or two worlds... There is the world where we live, and, and this world is simply a world of shadows and copies. The, um, the earth is an imperfect copy of the unseen, perfect realm that exists. But these two things are separated. The unseen world is a perfect world. It exists kind of up there somewhere. And what everything that we have on earth is an imperfect copy of the original that exists up there. So humans are imperfect copies of real humans that exist up there. 
Chairs that you're sitting on are imperfect copies of the perfect chairs that exist in heaven. Everything works on this duality. And so the longing is that as people who live in this imperfect physical world, we long to escape. We long to fly up to heaven. To be in the place of perfection, right? We want to escape it. So we want to escape this body. We want to escape the physical constraints and limitations of this earth. Um, So the great problem for the Greeks was, well, how do you escape this? How do you throw off this imperfect world and get into the perfect world? And so there's different thoughts about that. But I hope what you, as you're sitting there listening, you're realising that that's also the foundation of some other religions. Hinduism and Buddhism is all about this suppression of the physical in the ultimate search of the spiritual. But this idea has also infiltrated the church and perhaps it's infiltrated your life as well and your thinking. And this is part of this web that's weaved in our culture. That the physical is bad. Now, sin is bad and we sin. But you see, against the Greek worldview that says the earth is bad because it's physical and material, what does John say? John boldly declares, for God so loved the created physical earth that he gave his one and only son. Do you see the power of that? It's always a powerful scripture, but if you see it against a Greek backdrop that the earth is bad, the physical is bad, and John is counteracting it saying, no, no, this... This one who's the creator, he took on our flesh. The physical isn't bad. The physical isn't evil. The world is not evil. It's not functioning as it was originally designed to function. I'm not functioning as I was originally designed to function because I'm designed to function as an image bearer. But I'm not bad. God has not abandoned me. I don't need to escape this to find God. God actually said, I've come to you. I'm relentless in my pursuit of you. It's a wonderful truth. This is the truth of the Christian message. God did not abandon the world. He did not give up on the world. And the people who'd rebelled against him, he didn't, he didn't say, you're all bad and wicked and evil in the sense that he's abandoning us. He's come to us. This is the message from all the Gospels. One of the ways that this Greek dualism is, is currently producing fruit, it's bearing fruit in our very society today. I need to say this very carefully, so please listen carefully. One of the fruits of the duality of this, there's a perfect somewhere, and I'm an imperfect copy of that, right, is the phenomenon of transgenderism. The idea that I could be born in the wrong body. You see, something happened between the perfect realm where I exist as a perfect reality, but now I'm here in an imperfect reality. That's one of the ways that transgenderism speaks 
right? I'm born in the wrong body. Now, don't have time to deal with that issue. We have spoken about this before, but I do want to recommend, if that's new thinking for you and you'd like to explore that more, I highly recommend a book by a lady called Nancy Piercy. It's called Love Thy Body. And she brilliantly unpacks this in a very, very accessible way to all people. So Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy is a book I would recommend for you to read. So John, coming back to him, he's, he's confronting this, this duality of the created world and he's saying, but the word, the logos, the reason and rationality became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And as I said, for God so loved the world. And then Jesus continues this in the things that he says. When Jesus says things like, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. I'm not the copy. I'm not an imperfect copy. I'm the real. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. You know, I'm not. So, and on and on. When Jesus is saying, I am the vine. I am the shepherd. Again, it's confronting. Now, it says things to Greeks as well as to Jews. And that's why I say, I think John's done a masterful way in which he's written. So, because when the word that we translate or can, the word reality is very similar to the word truth. So you can, when, if your translation says that Jesus says, I'm the true, I'm the true, you could also say, I'm the real, every time. Those I am state, those I am declarations are fantastic because for Jews, what they're hearing is I am, which is, so they're hearing the echoes of Exodus where Moses is commissioned by God to go and deliver his people and Moses says, well, who shall I tell sent them, sent me? And God says, tell them, I am. <laughs> I exist. The one who exists, the eternal one who exists, sent you. That'll be enough, Moses, and I'll back it up with other things. So, so when they hear Jesus saying those statements, I am, that's what they're hearing, and the Greeks are hearing... He's not a copy that's come down. He is the true. He's the reality of that come down. And so you see the, this brilliant way John's done it. So throughout the New Testament, we just read a couple of quotes from Paul. Uh, they're contending with this Greek philosophy, and uh, we're still doing it today. But it's in the church, and it might have got into your thinking. So here's a simple test for you to think about today. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. So just... But just answer this question. Do you tend to put things into categories and think that's the physical, that's the spiritual? Do you tend to put things into the categories of that's natural, that's supernatural? Do you use the word supernatural to describe the activity of God? It's pretty rife in the church. my, My personal uh, conviction is that the word supernatural is a lingering influence of Greek philosophy simply because the Bible never uses a word like that. I've not been able to find the word supernatural in the Bible. Uh, if you found it, please come and show me, but I've not found it in there. Um, the Bible speaks of the realms of earth, the realm of earth and the realms of heaven. Uh, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus prays, Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is being done in heaven. 
Perhaps you find yourself despising or hating your physical body as if having a body is something evil or that you have the wrong body. The whole body positivity image thing um, is to say, I, this is, I am God's creation. I have a physical body and my physical body is designed as an instrument of worship. And not just with my voice, but with my hands. With all my being, I'm meant to express worship and adoration to him. My whole being, it's why I lift my hands, it's why I bow my knees. My body is meant to be, is the temple where the spirit of God lives. It's an over, it's used, it's the, what God has given me. And we know that we're looking forward to the day of resurrected bodies, with bodies that won't age or decay or get sick, you know, or die. So we know that it's a, we, God intends for us to always have physical bodies. When we see Jesus in his resurrected body, it's a physical body. He says to the disciples, touch me. He eats food. He says, put your finger in the holes in my hand and look where they pierce me with the spear in my side. It's an amazing thing of how that works. So when we are talking about Jesus, we're talking about the eternal God in a physical body. And we're talking about the one who gives abundant life in all its fullness. The one who gives living water to drink. The one who offers new birth based not on human passion, as he says in John. John tells us in his conversation with Nic- Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Not based on human passion, but an act of God. The one who offers us that new birth. And the one, the physically resurrected one, that's who we're talking about, this Jesus. Just listen again to these words. I said them earlier, but listen again to these words from John's letter. And he says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He's the word of life. We saw the eternal one. We touched him. As we go through this series called Meet Jesus, again, let me finish with these words. It's that we would know him as he is, not as we imagine him to be. And for those of us that have given our loyalty and worship to Jesus, that it would just renew us and refresh us in that, And for people who've not done that, that you would come to that place that John wrote about, and because this is written for all of us. These are written that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we'll have life in his name. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you're real. Thank you that You who are the uncreated God became a human man and you dwelt among us. Thank you for the power of that reality and the importance of it. This one, this one that you are, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, as we were praying earlier, for the salvation of Muslim people during this Ramadan season. I'm asking 
that you will open our eyes again to see Jesus as he is. The glory of this one, the glory of God in flesh, walking amongst us, that we'd hear the words that John has written with fresh ears, that we'd see the the words that he's written with fresh eyes. But Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart to be captivated afresh by the wonder and the majesty and the beauty of who you are. Jesus, we want to know you. And we thank you that you make yourself known to those who desire to know you. Would you give us the gift of a hunger for you, Jesus? We're hungry for lots of things. Holy Spirit, would you give us a gift of hungering for Jesus? Hunger for his presence hunger to know him as he as he is a hunger to read the scriptures in, like we've never hungered for them before god that would be a great gift to us to have a hunger for your word that's greater than any other hunger in our lives and greater than any hunger that we've had before oh, i'm asking you father god to stir that up amongst us God, as we go from here today, we want to want to go with that, with our hearts filled with hope, because of who Jesus is. This glorious one, this one who fills our lives with the reality of who He is. A confident hope as we face a very uncertain future, but we have a confidence in You that You are leading. The world is not on some; it's not out of control on some trajectory that's not known it's working according to your plans and purposes because it's your creation it all belongs to you God and you're moving things through history to that great climax of the return of Jesus and for him to govern the whole earth as the king reigning from Jerusalem and the law of the Lord going forth from Jerusalem and people streaming up to say let's go up to the house of the Lord Let's go up to Jerusalem to see Jesus. That's where history is going. It's a glorious reality. We long for it, the new heavens and the new recreated earth to dwell with you forever. Stir our hearts afresh, I'm praying in your name, Jesus. Amen.